Welcome to More Like This, a podcast from Netflix Q, the journal that celebrates the people, ideas, and process of creating great entertainment. I'm Krista Smith. I've spent over 20 years interviewing some of the biggest names in Hollywood. And on this show, I'm bringing you fresh new perspectives from across the entertainment industry with the kind of access only Netflix can offer. But I won't be doing it alone. I get to collaborate with some of the best writers, interviewers, and experts in the business. My co-host this week is an author, educator, lecturer, and inclusion activist for disabled people. She's done a TED Talk, spoken at the White House, and she's the director of Tilting the Lens, a consultancy working to accelerate systemic and cultural change through innovation and design. She's a contributing editor to British Vogue and has been featured on the cover as well. To top it all off, she's a close friend of Victoria Beckham. I'd like to welcome to our show, Sinead Burke. Thank you so much for having me. I'm not sure those credentials fit a visual description of what I look like right now. So to, (laughs) I suppose, distill the veil of the glamour, I'll tell you what I look like and where I am right now. So I am in my hometown in Ireland, which is just kind of in the middle of the country. And I'm actually nestled in my brother's bedroom because it's still the middle of the holidays. People have not gone back to work, even from a remote perspective. So finding a quiet space to talk to you was a little difficult. And I am wearing a blue cashmere knit jumper that has a rib stitch on the cuffs and also on the waistband. And my hair is longer than it has ever been, thanks (laughs) to the pandemic. And it's gently waving because I really haven't done anything to it except move my hands through. But yes, I am a white woman with brown eyes, brown hair, and I am a little person. I stand at the height of three foot five inches tall. But that's me, if you were looking at me. Hmm. Where are you? Well, I like the, the use of jumper because in America we always say sweater. So I am in a red sweater left over from the festivities of Christmas. But it's it's been a little chilly here in Los Angeles, California. And I know I do say that with a grain of salt here in the land of sunshine. But I am at the recording studio where I record most of my podcasts unless I'm in my husband's closet at my house. And uh, I am a white woman and I do have brown hair and brown eyes as well. So here we are. It's lovely to speak with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. What have you been uh, watching lately on Netflix? It's funny. I seem to have found myself in all of these unpredictable corners of Netflix. I've been watching a lot of Norwegian dramas. I just finished this show called Occupied, which is based in Norway. And a new prime minister has just been elected. And in order to be sustainable, he has decided that Norway is going to turn off the oil and the gas supply in order to create renewable energy. But as you might imagine, governing bodies in close continents are not too pleased. It's really interesting in thinking about social cultures and norms and what does independence and autonomy and individuality mean within a collective. I think perhaps it was particularly interesting for me as an Irish person with Brexit just happening over the waters. But it's been really interesting to move through different geographies and different languages. And thanks to accessibility on Netflix, be that with audio descriptions or English captioning, 
it gives me access to new realms that I never would have explored ever before. So I'm currently watching that and about to start Bridgerton. I really need to begin, but I haven't as of yet. I already started Bridgerton. (laughs) It's delicious. I've heard after episode five, I can't watch it with my parents, which is good news. So maybe I should start there. Well, speaking of your your parents, these have been very interesting uh, times in terms of the holidays. How has it been for you? How have you broke tradition in, in this pandemic? I am the eldest of five children, which means even among my most closest family unit of my parents and my siblings and I, we are a big family. Most of us live at home. Some of us do not. And I think there's been a real understanding that making this year different has been so important that by each of us making an effort in order to observe restrictions, in order to ensure that those who are working on the front lines, those who are most vulnerable medically, will get to Christmas next year, I think is something that we are really looking forward to. Hmm. Wow, the oldest of five. I kind of, you had me at, at that. <laughs> there's there's so many of us and there's like two years between each of us. And it's been really wonderful growing up because as the only little person among my siblings, I've always been their eldest sister, but not necessarily their biggest sister. Um, but my brother and my sisters are just really wonderful people. They've taught me the importance of kindness and selflessness in the sense that They're always observing what they can be doing to make somebody else's life a little bit easier, if that makes sense. And that can be helping me reach something because it's up high or it can be asking somebody, how are you? And not waiting for a performed answer, which is I'm fine. Or if you're Irish, I'm grand. It's really waiting to see what somebody needs to talk about and to speak about and to listen. Well, that kind of in, a, in an odd way makes a perfect segue into Pieces of a Woman, which is a film coming uh, to Netflix this week. And it stars Vanessa Kirby. And it's all about kind of just what you describe, like listening and giving people time and how are you. And it's a whole other look on how we experience grief and how individual it can be. And this is a film about a woman who loses a child and what that means, how she processes that and how different it is for everybody and the expectation of how she's supposed to process that. She's such an incredible actress. And to see her take on this role is, I don't know, I I don't know, Vanessa, but it filled me with pride to watch her. What really struck me with this film was the visibility of something that has been made so invisible. Talking about losing children. As a disabled woman, this film really spoke to me in that I have dwarfism. If I choose to have a child with somebody who also has dwarfism, there is a great likelihood that if I became pregnant, that that pregnancy wouldn't survive birth. And that's a reality that I may have to face into in my future. And when we talk about the importance of storytelling, the importance of visibility, watching this film, seeing Vanessa act out the grief with such authenticity and such pain, it wasn't glamorized and it was raw and vulnerable and intimate, gave me vocabulary to begin to describe something that might be in my trajectory, to have such caliber of acting from Vanessa with a storyline that is a reality for so many. It was really powerful. 
I got to talk with the star of Pieces of a Woman, Vanessa Kirby. American audiences have come to know Vanessa from her breakout role alongside Tom Cruise in the action-packed Mission Impossible franchise. More recently, she's been adored for her award-winning portrayal of a young Princess Margaret in season one and two of The Crown. It's great to see you, Vanessa. Where in the world am I finding you and, and what are you doing right now? I'm at home in London. I live with my sister and two friends, so I'm in my bedroom right now, (laughs) (laughs) which is where all the important things happen. Yeah. Well, you had quite a a year, or let's just say a fall. It started with a bang with winning Best Actress at the Venice Film Festival, which had to be pretty amazing. It was one of the most surreal experiences of my life, for sure, because in the sort of couple of months leading up to it, when we knew the films had got in, which was a miracle in itself, truly. And I'd never been to Venice before the festival. And so the whole thing was a bit like a, a crazy dream, honestly. Mm-hmm. I didn't stop smiling the entire way. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's go back to Pieces of a Woman and kind of how it came to you and your feelings when you first read that script. Because I know a lot of actors like to lean into things that terrify them or scare them. And this had to be one of those things for you, because this is just such a daunting project emotionally and physically. Can you talk to me a little bit about that fear? I guess we all have a kind of a weird drive to push into parts of ourselves that we didn't know lived there some way, or a part of being human that maybe we didn't, we don't know about. And those things are always scary inside yourself, you know? And so for pieces, yeah, it was it was it was fucking terrifying because I haven't given birth, and I thought, who am I to carry that on screen? You know, in a way, when so many you know women <laughs> across the planet uh, have done it, and men have been by their sides, and and I haven't, um, as well as knowing that I would even have to get a little bit close to understanding what it might feel like to to lose a baby in that way. And that, that was even bigger, you know? And then the, the, as I went into the sort of the research for it, (laughs) because I was so scared about not getting it right. I then began to find women, to talk to women, friends of friends, contact women that were really willing to talk about it. And all of every single one of them said, no one's ever asked me. No one finds it easier to talk to me about it when it happened since and society doesn't really want to hear it if it's too, it's almost too uncomfortable. And I thought, oh my God, I'm so glad that we might be doing a film for the first time that really confronts that, that really difficult subject. And I kind of felt, even though I was terrified of it and might get it wrong, that I had to try. I hope in many ways the film might help even one person feel a little bit less lonely because it's represented something they may have felt. Mm-hmm. Well, also what makes this film so unique and visceral and and, you're just dropped into it from the very beginning is that the way it shot that first opening sequence, basically the the birthing scene is all one take and you never let go. And as an audience member, you're in it. And I have given birth two times. Um, It was different. I was in a hospital, but I know that like, ugly, beautiful feeling that's happening to your body and things are happening that you just can't even, you've never felt before. You only feel in that experience. What was that like? 
we were, I was so excited about the ambition we had to, to do it all in one take. And I was actually really relieved because the minute that you break that up, it becomes fake. And I was so scared about doing a fake birth, you know, and in my research, I was, I started off watching tons of documentaries and all of them are edited and censored and, you know, all the nice bits or like little snippets. And I was like, I don't, I still don't understand w- when a contraction comes and, and why and how much space between and that your water can break at any time. And I, you know, I just felt so humbled and totally ignorant. And so, you know, then I found an obstetrician who was amazing and let me shadow her and spent a lot of time in the labor board or the midwives teaching me the moves. I've got so many videos on my phone of them showing me all the moves, all the kind of like really animal moves, but still I, I could never have done it without this miraculous thing happening where this amazing woman came in and allowed me to watch her give birth. And I, it was just, I just remember those six hours watching her just being like, I know that this is a, one of the biggest moments of my life, like to be in a room when a baby's born and I hadn't had that experience ever before, nor did I even imagine what it would be like. So, and after that, then I thought, okay, now I, now I feel able to, to act it. So we had the ambition to do up to 30 minutes of one, one take. And um, I knew that I had to do all my own work prior to, to understand if I had to turn up on set and just do it, I might be able to <laughs> not completely fall flat on my ass and be an embarrassment to every woman that's ever done it and every man that's ever watched it. Um, and so we did four takes the first day and two the second. And also it was just so exhilarating because you, you could just be in the present moment with what was happening. You didn't have to break for lunch or, you know, change a lighting setup or whatever. You could just, just live it weirdly. I feel so humbled by it. And so, and it's like having done it in a pseudo way, you know, I haven't done it for real, but I, I kind of weirdly semi know what the experience is like. It's really bizarre thing. I loved reading that there was a lot of rehearsal happening in Ellen Burstyn's apartment in New York on the Upper West Side, I believe. And that to me just felt like, oh, it's fa- how fantastic is that? You're just going to her apartment. Like, first of all, just that intimate space to work out these scenes and work out these relationships. How was that? I mean, I imagine it was the first time you've met her, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember us coming off in the lift just being like, oh my God, we're meeting Ellen Burstein and we're going to her house. But the minute we walked in, it's just this, it's just so lucky that you're with a group of actors that you happen to be doing, exploring something with and you all really, you feel familiar to each other. You know, Ellen talks a lot about stage work and you kind of have that real, you know, when, when you're on stage, all you've got is each other. You know, you don't, you can't cut, you can't walk off. You have to just, keep going even if it's going really badly or something's you know and not judge the previous moment or the next moment just and your only your only life raft is the other person and I think we're all those kind of actors and so the minute we we walked in we go god I don't know none of us know how we're how we're going to even touch this film with this level of heaviness in a way and we just sort of locked in and trusted each other and decided to hold hands and go for it and see what happened but it, yeah, it was a very surreal moment walking to her house. And also, you know, she's got like a million awards, <laughs> you know, in one room. And she's like, she's just amazing. She's such an icon. We're both so nervous. But I also, I stayed overnight at her house a couple of times, um, just so we would start to feel like family and build that, build that past together. Um, 
And, you know, we speak every day now. She's she's like family. So it was such a gift. Yeah, that your your relationship is so strong in the film, obviously. And the other big set piece was that dining room scene, you know, the dinner scene and you two were going at it. And again, totally believable that mother and daughter at, at odds. And when she's just coming at you full strength, I love what she had said that that you had told her, you know, really bring it, make me make me go to court, change my mind right now. And she just this, being a person of the theater just loved that. We were we were working on the script, Kata Cornell, Ellen and I were working on the that section, that half of the scene for ages, not quite knowing what it had to be. And suddenly, I, if, if I remember, I think in that moment, I just thought, oh, the whole thing has to be about trying to get her to go to court or else there is no case. And therefore, there is no movie, really. <laughs> so we kind of did the scene and it wasn't really working. And I started, you know, really feeling feeling Martha's feelings. And suddenly I just, yeah, turned her before the, the camera roll. And I went, make me go to court, make me go to court, make me go to court. And she just, she really made me go, you know. Like, it's just, it. I mean, it's Ellen, isn't it? So... She just, and I remember being on the other side of the camera, watching her do that speech, just being like, oh my God, it's like a requiem moment, you know, Uh, which has always been such a a moment in my, you know, inspiring acting moment for me, that speech she has in that. um, And it was sort of happening in front of me. So I was just sort of witness to it. Yeah, it feels like this experience is is one that changed you in a way and, and or it's not one that you're going to not take with you moving forward. Let's put it that way. But it feels like your first lead, call sheet wise, all of that. Totally. I feel I feel really changed from it. I I felt I didn't know when I was going to lead a movie for the first time, but I knew at some point I would like to very much. And I also knew that you I always felt like I had to earn my dues for that a little bit. I never forget there was, um, when I was at university, I, w- I would go up and forth from, like, it was university outside London, like three hours. And I'd go up on the train for some weird auditions in London. And I remember walking to the station on the way to town, just going, someday, some way this will, this will pay off, you know? So when this came to me, I guess I thought, oh, I think this is it. And I, I know how much I care about this and how much I want this birth to be accurate for women because I realised through my own research, I, I hadn't seen, you know, the woman I saw felt really nauseous all the way through and had been sick a lot that morning. And I wouldn't have known that from any documentary. So I just, I just imagined I felt really sick in the film. And that's why I burp a lot, which is going to be really hard for some people to watch. But, you know, weirdly, in Venice, a lot of people came up to me and went, thank you for the burping. I didn't understand what they meant. But then after, I think on reflection, I go, oh, I'm really, I'm so proud that, you know, that, that I learned from that amazing woman who gave me the gift of allowing me to watch her and knowing that that's what really happens to a woman when she's in her most, her power, actually, in that moment, you know, as you said, it's, it was horrifying and fucking like profound and mag- majestic and divine and sacred and also you know she felt so sick she was going to throw up at any minute or poo herself do you know what I mean like that's but that's being human you know that's also being a man that's all the all the parts of it so I felt I just knew when I read this and I started it I just thought oh 
I'm really lucky that this is the one. What are some of the things that you're you're hoping to do in the next couple of years or so? And you want to get back on theater? Or like, how are you feeling? I've always had a dream to sort of be able to create and find things and create women on screen that we haven't seen before in different ways that we haven't seen before. And that's what's so exciting. I think there's definitely space and it's opened up so much in the last few years and now more than ever where female writers are being asked to write their experience of it, you know, and then female directors and, and us as actresses, there's, it's something that I really want to be a part of. And I feel like I have a responsibility to do, to be honest. Um, which is why the, the the burping was probably the most flattering compliment I've ever had <laughs> on an acting job, truthfully. Because, <laughs> I was, you know, I didn't realise that that would be a surprise to people. Because, I mean, my God, we all burp, you know, and, and we should show that life on screen, mm. you know. Thank you so much, uh, Vanessa. It's great to catch up with you. Stay safe and sane out there. And I look forward to when we can actually see each other in person at some point hopefully soon hopefully very soon i I so hope i'm gonna give you the biggest hug (laughs) to hear my full interview with vanessa listen to her recent episode of present company wherever you get podcasts You can read the text version of this interview at NetflixQ.com. That's Q-U-E-U-E dot com. So, Sinead, we're so thrilled to have you sit down with co-directors Jim Lebrecht and Nicole Noonan from Crip Camp, which is the documentary that uh, first launched at Sundance and is has now been uh, on Netflix for some time. Just the name alone, Crip Camp, you know exactly what it is. It's such a brash, kind of un-PC title for what the film is really about, which is this camp that these disabled people went to and got to be free, got to f- be treated like real human beings. And what's just so incredible about this film is that the footage is all original and you really feel like you're in there with them. And the trajectory that it takes following these kids into adulthood and how so many of them went on to become activists and, and how it really changed the course and the narrative for disabled people is quite extraordinary. And then, of course, the Obamas came on to to be executive producers and whatnot. But why don't you tell me about talking with the filmmakers and what that was like for you personally to meet them and to get to interview them? There's this phrase in advocacy circles, if you can see it, you can be it. And when we think about disability representation in film, there have been some great examples in the past, but many of them played by non-disabled people. But if we think about representation and visibility as a new wave, we also want to see disabled people behind the camera, shaping the stories and framing them. And in many ways, for me, that's what makes Crip Camp such a success, because this is told for, by and with disabled people. So getting to virtually sit with Jim and Nicole, the co-directors of Crip Camp, was just really so incredible. The film charts the history of disability rights, particularly in the US. But it is an ignition, I think, for a global disability rights movement in thinking about what does accessibility mean? What does inclusion mean? And in a pandemic where we talk about people who are vulnerable, that movement has never been more important. Nicole is a non-disabled woman. How is she an ally 
to Jim, who is a disabled man, co-directing this film, whose background is not in directing, but actually in sound production. How do you code switch into that space and not feel like an imposter when there are so few people who look like you in those spaces and in those rooms? But also asking them, how do they leverage the film to speak to that global community? It was wonderful just sitting with them as colleagues. I've been very fortunate in the past couple of months to work with them as an international impact advisor for the global campaign, thinking about disability advocacy and rights. And I think what I learned most from speaking with them was Jim's final words were that he had just spoken to somebody who had said for the first time ever, a film had made them feel like they belong, despite not knowing Jim or not knowing Nicole. And really, it made me ask the question, what can I do to help other people feel like they belong? And maybe it's not creating a Netflix documentary produced by the Obamas. Maybe it is. It's unlikely, though. But what can we each do as individuals or as collectives to make people feel like they belong? And film is such an important lens that we can create community around, about and for. Have you ever watched something and it has made you feel seen and heard in a way that you can't even begin to describe? Or it's something that you needed to see but didn't know how much you needed to see it? I can viscerally remember the moment that happened for me. It was a film called Crip Camp and I feel so very honoured to be sitting across virtually from two of the people who brought that film to life and who are responsible for its existence. Jim Lebrecht and Nicole Newham. Thank you so much for being here. How are you both? Good. I'm really happy to be here with you. I've been <laughs> looking you. forward to this conversation. Yeah, and Sinead, I got to say that um, we are all drawn to light and that's why we're here with you. Okay. Oh, so, thank you it's, so much. Yeah. You've been a wonderful leader in our community. So really happy well, to be thank here. You. I wanted to begin our conversation with each of us giving a visual description of ourselves. All right. Well, I'm a 64-year-old white guy with kind of a long gray goatee. I'm a wheelchair user. I think you heard me just moving my chair a little closer to the microphone because, indeed, I my lineage is in audio. So I darn well better sound really good here. I've got long hair, uh, black glasses. And I've got a, um, a nice long sleeve teal ch- shirt that uh, is from a sh- surf shop. And I've, there's a red wall behind me with a bunch of movie posters. Uh, you'll be disappointed to learn that Jim forgot to mention that three minutes before we began this recording, he took out this incredible hairband and ensured that his tussled locks were trapped with the hairband. It's, it's a visual delight that he failed to admit, so I'm helping that with you. Nicole! Um... So I am a 51-year-old white woman with blondish brown hair that goes down to about my shoulders, COVID length. I have a a red beaded necklace with some Tuareg beads in it on and uh, matching lipstick because I did not understand that this was... An audio-only interview, and uh, and I am wearing some sort of oval-shaped glasses that were inspired by um, Judy Human's glasses in Crip Camp, uh, and I'm sitting in my house in Oakland, California, next to a bookcase with my son's Greek bazooki hanging on the wall behind me in the background. 
I wanted to ask, you know, the two of you have been friends for such a long time and have worked on lots of different projects together, but your relationship has been different in Crip Campus co-directors. How did you have to make space for one another in a way that was different on this project than the way you had worked previously? Although we've known each other for so long, and when I'm talking about three films, it was really with Crip Camp that we were really in each other's lives daily. We had to find and forge this collaboration that was business, partners, friends. But underlying all of this, there was a real trust. That I mean, That is the solid bedrock of, I think, what happened with us on our film. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I like to co-direct. I've always co-directed. For me, it's like making space for, for someone else to have kind of full agency in a project and working until you get to consensus artistically and creatively um, is something that I enjoy. I kind of took the lead on like the story architecture and kind of the design of the story and how the edit fit together. And Jim took the lead on like, what does this film have to say? What is most important that it's going to say? And how is it going to be said in an authentic, true way that is going to you know, speak to a disabled audience and, and authentically represent the disability community. It was tricky because it was Jim's life and it was a lot of really emotional, personal work that he had to do. And I was consistently in awe of how he was able to come into the room and, and look at a scene as a scene when it was also about some tender or very emotional part of his own life, you know, or it was about a person that he loved deeply from his past, but whom we were talking about as a character within the complicated architecture of story. I think it's such a brilliant duality of, of skill sets and personalities bringing to something like this. But I remember watching it, for those who may be listening to this who haven't seen Crip Camp, it's an extraordinary story of what starts out in Camp Jeanette, which is a place where before manual handling courses existed, disabled people went and found space to figure out who they are and who they could be. And through that experience at the camp, charts a narrative of the disability rights and disability justice movement in the US. But as Nicole has said, it's it's deeply entrenched in Jim's own personal story because he's not just a co-director, but is a protagonist and was in that camp. But Jim, what made you be an observer, but also a participant to such a historic moment that at the time was just your summer? All of that black and white footage from 71 was a result of this wonderful group of people called the People's Video Theater coming to Camp Jeanette. They showed up and wanted to take this new technology of portable video and use it as a tool, right? For marginalized communities, you know? And they said to us, let's make a film, you know, about, would you like to make a film about your camp? And um, they, so they, and, and they came to the drama and camera club and with their equipment. And then um, shortly after that, they asked me if I'd like to do a tour of the camp. And so they strapped this really kind of heavy tape deck to the handlebars of my pushchair and then handed me this video camera, which wasn't terribly light either. Um, and somebody pushed me around camp. So I think it was probably Howard 
from the People's Video Theater that was with us and one of the counselors. And and as you can hear in our film, it's like, just tell us wherever you want to go. We'll, we'll just go there. Did you feel empowered by that process or observed? I'm totally empowered. Totally empowered. These folks could have come in and gone to the camp director and said, how, how are you taking care of these, these poor handicapped children? They didn't do that. They gave us agency. They treated us like any other group of teenagers and young adults. And that just didn't really happen in our lives, you know? Where do you think that came from? Like, how, how do you think that approach manifested? They were revolutionaries. They were, um, they were running these pop-up video theaters where they would like go to all different movements. Like they were with the Black Panthers, they were with the women's movement, they were with the gay rights movement at the time. And one thing we came to understand was that Ben Levine, who was doing some of the filming and some of the interviewing, had actually done a lot of work in Pennsylvania with young people with disabilities in kind of a program in which he would take these large photographs, black and white photographs, like large format photographs of them that he could blow up really huge. And he did that as kind of a, um, a process of sort of workshopping kind of with them, you know, what they thought about themselves and how they felt about themselves. He brought a lot of real heart and sensitivity to the work. And I wonder, Jim, in thinking about that as a vehicle for empowerment, when the filming and the camp ended that year and you returned to your community, did you have an, any sense or was there any change in yourself from experiencing that moment and from not necessarily, uh, from being the protagonist in your own story? You know, I, I had the perspective of a 15-year-old boy. So, I mean, I, I thought it was really, really cool that I got to do this. But I have to say that this was an amazing experience at the camp. But there were so many other things at that camp that added to my enrichment that added to my sense of self and learning how to really be prideful and to really kind of see that life could be a better place. I, I, and you know, I'm not trying to say that like I went to camp and I was depressed and, or whatever. First of all, the morning that you go to first day of camp is like, unlike any other morning, I would bound out of bed. Normally I'm the, I'm the, kind of typical 15-year-old kid that you have to throw a bucket of water on, right? But it was banned. But I think what I'm trying to say is that the overall experience there really was what enriched me. But when I went back home, it was like, you know, I, I played baseball in my wheelchair. You know, I was waiting to see my friends on the block. And, and it's only through the years of looking back and especially obviously working on our film that I can actually see how critical those summers that I spent at that camp were absolutely made my life what it was today or is today. But I also love the idea that what is now such a revolutionary moment was kind of ordinary when you were 15, as all of these revolutionary moments in some ways are, are somewhat ordinary to a 15 year old because life just continues. You didn't know in that moment that the footage you had just recorded would go on to be a Netflix original film produced by Barack and Michelle Obama. And I kind of love the lack of ceremony around it as a teenager, not knowing what it would become. It only makes it, I suppose, even even more special in that sense. What impact would you like Crip Camp to continue to have 
And what changes have been made as of yet in the industry or what would you like to propel further? First off, I think this is a kind of a, an amazing thing that seems to be happening this year that stories around disability don't have to fall into the old trips. They don't have to be tragic or inspiration porn. And indeed they don't because I think what Crip Camp shows is kind of the full rainbow of experiences that one has with living with a disability. That's what personally what I'm hopeful for in the future is that when you have filmmakers with disabilities telling the stories and 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 doing it well, you realize that that obviously that's the way to do it. And like that shouldn't be a surprise. This is what we know from every other marginalized community. Right? So we need people as directors, as producers, as casting agents. You know, we need those people. And I'm not saying that allies aren't important, but what are we all after in this world? Authenticity. We we want something that feels real and dramatic and new and exciting and sexy and funny and compelling. I have one final question for you both. What do you wish your legacy to be? I would like my legacy to be that I've made a difference. A positive difference. Simple as that. Yeah, I, w- I would like to leave behind stories that have made a positive difference and have offered beauty. Jim and Nicole, I feel so very honored to be able to describe you as collaborators, as partners in a bigger project, um, but even more so as friends. I learn from both of you uh, different things every day, and I cannot thank you enough for bringing your whole selves uh, and your vulnerability and your curiosity to this conversation. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thank you. Krista, I can't thank you enough for allowing me to irritate Jim and Nicole with those questions. I haven't stopped thinking about it since I talked to them both. So thank you so much for that opportunity. Well, Sinead, now it's my turn to annoy you with questions. (laughs) I mean, my first question is really very basic. Like, how did you get into activism? Like, what was it for you? You're you're still so very young and you've been incredibly uh, effective and prolific. And I mean, all joking aside, your resume is is impressive. So my question to you is when when did that moment happen for you when you realized this was your calling? I'm not sure if there ever was a specific moment around activism. I think I'm really lucky. My parents are extraordinary people. My dad is a little person like me. So I grew up in a household where in many ways I knew that anything was possible. And my mother is just the most extraordinary human being who was an advocate for me when I couldn't advocate for myself. And from the earliest of ages, my parents told me that I could do anything that I wanted to do, whether that was go to the moon or become an elementary school teacher, that I may have to find a different way around it or different method by which to do it, but that didn't mean it was impossible. So I grew up with this confidence of my own ambition and really and so very fortunate that that was nurtured within me. And so I trained to be a teacher 
And I loved my time in the classroom. And I think what I learned in the classroom was that everybody else was really concerned about how my disability would make me less of a teacher. When actually what I discovered was that my disability defined me. In the same way that being a woman and being Irish did, it shaped the lens through which I viewed the world and it actually gave me the resources that I needed to be a good teacher. So, for example, on my very first day of school, a student asked me, why are you so small? Which is a great question. And I'd say, well, why are you so big? And they'd say, I don't know, I was just born like this. I'd say, well, so was I. And they'd go, okay, great, what page are we on? Being a teacher and being a disabled teacher gave me these skills to... I don't know, facilitate curiosity. And I think my activism stemmed from realizing that I'm not necessarily disabled because I have dwarfism. I'm disabled by design. I'm disabled because a design standard exists that says that light switches must be five foot in the air. That's not the fault of my body. (laughs) But because the person who designed it was designing it for themselves. So why can't we change it rather than changing people? And in many ways, the turning point for me personally came about when I was 11. I was offered limb lengthening surgery right before my growth spurt. And what would happen is that my leg bones would be deliberately fractured. And over the course of a year, the bones would be spread apart so that in the gap, new bone could grow. It would give me about six inches additional in height. But at 11, what I was most concerned about was that it actually might make other people like me more, particularly the girls I went to school with. Maybe it would make it easier to make friends because I would skew closer to society's abstract definition of normal. And at 11, I decided that if people didn't like me because I was a little person, that wasn't my fault, nor was it my problem. Now, if they didn't like me because I was sassy, that was a different thing. Mm -hmm. But why did the world present opportunities or... Maybe even create a pressure for me to change who I was in order to fit in, in order to make everybody else more comfortable. So I remember being 11 and going into my parents and saying to them, I've decided what I'm going to do with the surgery. I'm not going to have it. I'm going to be me. And I think making that decision at 11 seemed so mundane at the time, almost quotidian, that actually it has shaped the person and the professional that I have become ever since because I have made the decision to be comfortable in my own skin and to realize that I'm not the person who needs to change, but I can actually be a vehicle for the world to change, to make it better for everyone. Because if we reduce the height of the light switch, that's not just going to help me, but it's going to help children. It's going to help people as they age. Let's design a world where people can be safe to be themselves whether that's the disabled community, the trans community, the queer community, there is an intersectionality in my approach to activism to try to make the world a more equitable and accessible place. So I'm not sure if there was one moment, but I'm fortunate that I was gifted parents who taught me to fight for what's right. I wonder how how did your parents feel when you told them that you didn't want to have the, the surgery? My dad as a little person had never been offered the surgery. Because in terms of the medical advancements, it wasn't really widely available in that era. 
So I think there was nothing to compare it to in that sense. I couldn't go to my dad for advice in the same way that I did as a child asking him about sneakers or clothes or kids making fun of me in the playground. So it was really the first time that I had to make a decision about being a little person all by myself. My parents told me that I had to make the decision, that they couldn't make it for me because this was something that I would have to live with. And it was something that I would have to accept or accept myself. And their response initially was really casual. They just said, great, we're really pleased that you have made this decision for you now. But you can change your mind. Don't feel like because you've said no to the surgery today that you can wake up tomorrow and feel like you want it. These things ebb and flow as do your emotions and your confidence. So give it time. And I'm really grateful to them because I'm not a parent. But if I was a parent, I don't know how comfortable I would be offering such a surgery to my child just in case they went with it. But again, that's not my choice to make for them. Mm. So I think it was a real act of bravery. Uh, and you talked a little bit about the outside world, that that there was bullying. I mean, you had this incredible nurturing environment inside the the walls of your home. But outside, it had to have been challenging at times and and very difficult due to whether it's perceptions of people like me or the visibility of people like me in films and television and the media we're rarely the protagonist and we're most often historically at least the butt of the joke that shapes my everyday experience when i leave the house i had an experience last year in dublin where i was just walking down the street it was lunchtime Two 16-year-old boys walked past me. And I thought nothing of it until one of them leapfrogged over me from behind. Jumped from the ground over my head to the other side. All the while his friend recorded the entire incident on his phone. They were hoping to go viral on the internet. And I was so upset. I was upset because in that moment, I wasn't a person but an object. They didn't even think about what would have happened if he'd have missed, if he'd have kicked me in the head, what kind of injuries I'd have been left with. It didn't matter because they had concocted this plan where I was just an entity by which they could possibly be famous. And my response to that initially was to engage the police. But I realised that if the police got in touch with them, all they would learn is to not get caught. Not the human story about what actually happened in that moment and how it made me feel. So I went and visited every school in the area, high school, elementary school, and shared parts of my lived experience, using them as a case study to explore and to connect it to their lives. I know that those two boys were in one of the classrooms that I spoke to because I think stories change hearts and minds. Well, let's talk about your company that you formed, Tilting the Lens, right? So I, on the smallest level, what are you most proud of that you've been able to accomplish with your um, consultant work with your company? And on the grand, giant dream level, what do you hope to accomplish? Gosh, Tilting the Lens is a consultancy company. It began because I had this appetite and, and pattern of asking why all the time. For example, why is there concrete steps outside of a museum? Why is the accessible entrance around the back? Or why doesn't one exist at all? 
and began realizing that the status quo remains because often we don't ask why. And asking why is great, but unless you're able to provide solutions, sometimes things don't change. So for me, what I'm proudest of is encouraging individuals, companies, and even governments to think about the idea that every issue is a disability issue. And that's true because we, as people, well, we're only temporarily non-disabled. Because we might fall and be on crutches, or as we age, we may have challenges with our hearing or our sight. How many people over 40 need to wear glasses? So by thinking through accessibility as a design opportunity, as a way in which to bring about creativity, innovation, longevity, sustainability, we are building a world where it is safe and beautiful and functional for everybody to be themselves. And the things that I'm proudest of are thinking about the notion that disability is by design. So how do we design not for disabled people, but with disabled people? And some of the best examples that I've been able to cultivate are in places like coffee shops, where we're redesigning what a coffee shop might look like from an inclusive perspective. From the very beginning, rather than something that's just tick box legal exercise at the end. So we've thought through the visibility of menus, that when you're queuing for a coffee, if you're like me, a little person, your line of sight for the menu, well, it's going to be out of reach. But what about if English isn't your first language? What about if Braille is the tactile lexicon that you use? How do we make those spaces accessible but creative for those people? But we're also thinking through things like wooden floors. If we put wooden floors even in a place like a coffee shop, that's going to help deaf customers because all of a sudden they're going to be able to feel the vibrations on the floor of the people who are moving around them. And in a pandemic, something like that has never been more important when you can sense how close or how far people are from you. But it's been also brilliant to do things such as create employment, working with luxury fashion companies to not just think about disability and accessibility as something that we have to do for our customers, because that makes our approach conditional because maybe they'll come into our store. But what about if they worked there? What about that notion of if you can see it, you can be it? All of a sudden, it gives us a mandate to look at retail design in a totally different way. Is there an elevator in the building? What does training look like? What does the recruitment process look like? And maybe those are the bigger projects. The smaller projects are just in helping people realize they haven't thought about this before. So tilting the lens is both a starting point, an accelerator, and hopefully an agitator for change and creativity and innovation. At the end of all my conversations, I always ask the same question, regardless of who I'm talking to. And that question is, what advice do you have for those who are struggling to make it? And whatever that make it is, uh, as a designer, as an artist, as a musician, as an actor, just living in the world, getting to the next day, what, what advice would you give them? I think it was about two years ago. I was coming out of a high school. I'd been speaking to maybe a thousand students, and I was just about to leave. And a young girl who was about 15 ran out of the hall after me, kind of shouting my name. The teacher said, no, 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 she's going, leave her alone, like, go back in. And I said, no, is everything okay? And she said, on the tough days, how do you keep going? And I just said, you know, there are some days that you breeze through, that you get to 8 p.m. in the evening and you can't realize the time. 
when there are other moments in your life where you feel every second and don't think you'll get to the next one. And I said, in those times, I just say, if I can get through yesterday, I can get through today. And if I can get to today, I can get to tomorrow. And sometimes if days seem too long of a period, I think about mealtimes, breakfast, lunch and dinner. But also if I survive the last hour, I can do the next one. So try to get yourself through those moments with support and with help and with resources in order to keep going. I think when we talk about making it, and I realize the caliber of guests that you have had on your incredible show, sometimes making it is just getting to three o'clock. And sometimes it's winning an award. I think we need skills for both of those times. Hmm. I couldn't agree more. So if people want to get in touch with you or or help you in any way or find out more about what you're doing, how, how do they do that? Well, thank you so much. I am readily available on the internet. I am at the Sinead Burke on most social media platforms, but the company is Tilting the Lens. That's www.tiltingthelens.com. And whether you are an academic institution, a large corporate or a creative company, accessibility is everybody's concern. It's going to give you greater audience share. It's going to give you greater profitability, but it's going to give you greater creativity because I've been hacking this world for 30 years. I already have the solutions that you probably haven't yet thought of, not out of maliciousness, but you just haven't had to. The greater diversity that we can bring to the table where decisions are made and ideas are created, the better the world is going to be. Sinead, thank you so much for being on the show and for educating us and inspiring us. I really thank you for your time and and thank you for challenging us to look at things differently. So appreciate it and so appreciate your work. The honor is all mine. Thank you so much. And I hope our paths cross again soon. Absolutely, they will. Now, are you kidding? (laughs) You don't even know me. Now I found you. I'm never going to let you go. Are you kidding? Yes. And thank you for listening in. That's our show. Pieces of a Woman streams on Netflix starting January 7th. All the other films and series discussed today are streaming now. For more, head over to NetflixQ.com. That's NetflixQueUE.com. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share. Listen in next time for more like this.